0: Today is a special episode of the Comets Podcast, and as always, it is brought to you by Huntington University. All Comet season ticket holders can take advantage of 25% off all tuition at Huntington University. All you have to do is go to the Huntington University Admissions Office or call the Comet Office, and they'll get you steered in the right direction. Again, 25% off all tuition for all Comet season ticket holders. All right, let's do this special edition of the Comets Podcast. 1, two. Comet fans and curious onlookers, it is I, Shane Alberani, bringing you another edition of the Comets Podcast, and this week we have got a special one. Actually, we've got two special ones this week and next, because we're coming up on the anniversary of the passing of Bob Chase, and uh, Bob Chase, very special to me, very special to a lot of Comet fans, and that's why we pay tribute to him every year by playing the Bob Chase Memorial Game on Thanksgiving nights. And this year, we're going to be wearing special special. Special jersey. So, we're even going to up our tribute a little bit more as uh, we all remember Bob. I remember Bob very fondly because he is the reason uh, I do what I do, and he's the reason why I'm I'm here doing this podcast. So, my relationship with Bob goes way back, and you know I cannot pay tribute to this man enough. Uh, this little part, these little podcasts I do, is just something that I can do to say thank you to Bob. So this episode and next week's episode is going to be kind of unique. Uh, last year I did one where I kind of went through all a lot of clips, a lot of old calls, and also uh, just shared you know a lot of feelings and a lot of stories I had about Bob. Uh, but this year a little different because uh, over the past uh, really all last year. I took Blake Seabreen's autobiography that he helped Bob write. I turned it into an audio book, and that is available at bobchasebook.com. You can go purchase that, download that, and uh, you can listen to the entire story narrated by yours truly. So uh, these next two episodes, uh, I'm going to play portions of chapters of that book mixed in with some great old classic Bob Chase calls. So I hope everybody enjoys this one. And, you know, if you're new to combat hockey and maybe you don't know the history of Bob Chase, this is definitely going to help you out. Uh, realizing that uh, the reason why we're all here, the reason why there's 8,000 people in the Coliseum every night, the reason why uh, the Coliseum is as beautiful as it is now, it is because of Bob Chase. He kept Comet Hockey alive for 63 years, so just a little thing I can do to help uh, the fans remember Bob, and just a, again, just a fantastic tribute to the man, and I hope everybody enjoys it. <laughs> is where i am a million lifetimes pass away like a billion chapter two when everybody had the same thing nothing my dad's name was Gennard wallenstein and my mom was hazel anderson and they were married in early 1925 my dad was a semi-pro football player as well as an electrician for the cleveland cliffs iron company The way they met was my mother had dated a guy in Marquette who was also a semi-pro football player when their two teams met. Her boyfriend was a halfback, and at the line of scrimmage, he met Pop. And Pop just creamed him, at which point my mother had an intense dislike for my father. Then she met him, and once they met, they started to like each other more and more, and finally were married. At the time, my mother was a nurse, and my dad was an electrician, and here comes me. I was born January 22nd, 1926. My sister Marion is five years younger than me and still lives in Marquette and she's married to Arthur McKay. Mom was almost exclusively a private duty nurse and she would spend many months with patients whom she would give specific care to. My dad was an electrician who wired mine shafts, working with all kinds of heavy voltage stuff. My father was the one who laid the first marine electric cable in the upper peninsula of Michigan. He was also a pro football player who played for the Green Bay Packers in 1920 and 1921. He was also one of the nation's top ski jumpers. He was 6'4", 220 pounds, a big man, and mom was 5'10", 170. I grew up in the Depression, so every kid did about the same thing. Nothing. There were no luxuries. If you happened to have a bicycle, you were darn lucky, because bikes cost 10 to $15, and your parents didn't have 10 to $15 to buy you a bike, so Shank's mare was the major means of transportation. That's what we called walking. Everybody was in the same boat. No one had anything, and no one really cared because we were all there. We made our own fun. That's when sandlot sports were really sandlot sports. When it became spring, you played baseball, and there was always vacant lots to play in. Nobody seemed to worry if you were hurting their property or anything. They just let you play. You'd play baseball all spring and all summer, and then in the fall, you'd play football, and as soon as the ponds froze over, you'd play hockey. I lived a mile off the main highway at this hydro plant on the south side of Marquette, so if you wanted to go play, the nearest place was a mile and a quarter away. The only way to get there was to walk, and of course, we lived on the shore of Lake Superior on the south side of Marquette, and there was always beautiful beaches. The water was colder than ice, but we didn't care. We'd swim day in and day out. We'd play baseball for an hour or two, get hot, jump in the water for an hour or two, and go back and play baseball again. That was kind of our life. And if you were going to get anything out of life, you had to find something to do. So when I was 11 or 12, I had a small Milwaukee Journal paper route. The route encompassed about three miles, and I think I might have had 20 or 22 subscribers. I made two cents a paper, not to mention the fact that when I'd leave home, I had to walk four miles to get where they'd leave the papers. On a Sunday, I'd get up at 6 a.m. and go up to the gas station and get there by 8. In the wintertime, I'd pull my sled and do my papers, and I'd get home by 9.30 or 10. You didn't have showers in those days. You took a bath. Every Saturday night, whether you wanted it or not. So I'd clean up, put on my clothes, and go to church. I'd get to church by 11.00. Everybody kind of smelled the same way, so we sort of ignored each other. Then I'd walk home from church. Then as I got older and had more friends around the city, and I wasn't restricted to just one street, I got to know more people, and occasionally one of them would be able to drive their parents' car, which meant that I could get a ride home, or if I was going someplace with the gang, they would come over and pick me up. We were always good kids, and we never had any major problems of any kind. In those days, morality was something you accepted as part of your life. It was just the way you grew up. Once it got to fall, then winter, the ponds would freeze over. There were two ponds on my way home off the main highway. The big pond and the cookie pond would always freeze first because it was shallower. There were probably 25 or 30 of us, and we used that pond as our hockey rink. I got an old pair of my dad's skates, and they were about six sizes too big to begin with, and I put extra socks on. I stuffed the toes, but you still spent all day on your ankles. We played from the time we were little kids and then went to South Marquette on the big rink. They had about two baseball fields on it, and the city would flood it in the fall and really take good care of it. You'd go up there and half the guys you'd never seen in your life before, but you'd bring your skates and your stick, and maybe if you had a puck, you would bring that too. Or maybe dad would cut birch pucks, which were just trees that were the right size, and you'd cut them down to the size of pucks and at some point paint them black. There really weren't any organized games. They might end up with one later in the day with a couple of guys starting to choose sides. Maybe you'd have 12 guys play, There was no park board hockey, but there was a city team that played out at a rink called the Palestra. If the guys from the city who plowed the rink saw a good kid or two, they'd come over and say, Hey buddy, stop at the Palestra Saturday morning and see so-and-so. That's where the big team skates. There was a private team in town called the Wild Geese. The man who sponsored them was named Max Reynolds, a huge stockholder in DuPont. And he was at least a millionaire in the days when millionaires were like God. A couple of guys who worked for him would scout the Palestra group, and if they thought you were good enough, they'd invite you over to play on his rink. I'll never forget, I got the invitation to go over there, and the first day, I'm not chosen for a team, but I'm handed a bell. I was going to officiate, but I didn't know the rules of hockey. We had just played pond hockey, keep away, and you just learned how to control things. I didn't have a clue what I was supposed to be doing, but I got this bell in my hand. Everybody is screaming, that was offsides, you dummy. So a fella comes over to me and says, Slim. You ever play hockey before and i said in south marquette on the pond and stuff and i was over at the palestra a couple times he says come here give the bell to him and i start watching and he explains some of the basic rules i'm 10 11 years old and all of a sudden it made sense what was going on so a couple of days later i'm back and now i could ring the bell and all of that stuff eventually i get to play for the wild geese i made a few trips but then it got expensive and my mom and dad couldn't afford it so I just went back and played in a minor league at the Palestra. When I was 16, the Marquette Sentinels, which were the semi-pro team, asked me to try out, and I made the team as an alternate. I was having lots of problems then because the high school coaches were madder than sin that I was trying to play hockey when I should have been playing.
1: Tonight's pregame activity and the big match tonight between the Fort Wayne Comets and the Peoria Prancers here at the Memorial Coliseum, the Comets on a nine-straight-victory run at this particular time, looking to make it ten. This would be the longest IHL victory scheme in the league this year. Comet General Manager Coach Ron Elliott here in pregame, reflecting a little bit on the run your club has made. Ron, I felt that the game played here Friday night against Milwaukee had to be one of the best performances I've ever seen a Comet team uh, perform for. Yeah, I feel the same way. I know a lot of other people who watched the game uh, felt that way, too. Uh, There was just a lot of good skating, some good
0: passing, uh, just a real exciting hockey game.
1: At center ice, ready to face it off for Peoria, Grant Rosanza For the Comets, Doug Rigler. Peoria controlling the initial faceoff. The referee tonight is Harry Hodgson. The linesmen are Brian Campbell and Mike McComb. Steenson, cross-rink to Morin. Tips a nice pass that's turned all the way to the zone. A drive by Robbie Laird. Just missed the corner of the net. Bottles the Comets up. Here comes Peoria with a man at the goal mouth and just missing a tip in George White. Peoria coming back with George White into the zone. Atwell back checks. Couldn't control the puck again. Rob Moats does a good job of checking. Atwell overskated another one. A shot high. That time off the stick of night. Jerry August sends it around behind the net. In goes uh, Steve Salvucci. Loose puck. He's got it. Going around behind the net. Sal trying to cram it in the short side. Nice play. August takes uh, Salvucci to the boards. Back up the middle. Lead pass. Broken up nicely again by Salvucci. Shoot. Save. Rebound. And un- unable to get to it was big John Hillworth. Out to center ice. And here's Wally Schreiber after that puck. He's got a man with him. It's Laird sends it to laird and he didn't get a piece of it here comes Shaw, has help on the way shot of the line long shot woo! it hit the post and came back out what a shot that was as Sancartier didn't even get a chance to move on it left wing pass here's rob moats on his way to the peoria zone around the defense looks all the way around behind the net moats looks for help into the slot for baldwin baldwin can't get it out to the point left side the drive and a save by Lastica. here's eve salvucci on the way Steve on to the zone around the defense. Steve out in front of the net. Centers the pass intended for Poliziani. Onto the zone again. Salvucci trying to poke the puck loose. Out at the point. Steenson a drive and a great save on the play. Titch hit on the play. It's broken up by Steenson of the Fort Wayne defense. Picked up again and Turnbull is nailed that time by Big John Hillworth. Over center Laird couldn't handle it but here goes Wally Schreiber in on goal. Look, shoot, save. Rebound cleared right up into the crowd. Bishop gets it right back. Up the middle it comes. Kicked nicely on the pass by Salvucci into the zone. Big John Hillworth rumbling down the boards. He just runs right over the top of Doug Poirier. Puts it in front of the net. First shot. As Salvucci came through, couldn't handle it. Hillworth to Poliziani and off to Salvucci. Here's Sal by one. By another one. Sal into the zone. Nice stick handling. Shoot save. As a great save by Lastica. Up with a puck, Captain Dale Baldwin to the comments. Up the boards nicely at center ice. It comes, breaking into the zone is Bobby Atwell, and he's carried off the puck, gets it back, and then in front of the net. Atwell putting a little pressure on him. He can't find his way out of there. Up the boards, Kept into the zone by Moats. Nice play by Robbie. Robbie puts it to the net. Round the side. Atwell got a shot away, but it's blocked again. Here's Bobby again. Pick a good stick, enter. Finds a breaking wing, Salbucci. shoots. Shootsy just off the side of the net. And roll right behind the goaltender. But hanging on was Lestica. Out it comes, a drive off to the side of the net, it's wide, it's behind the goal, Wayne Bishop trying to shovel it on by the Peoria winger, cleared off onto the right boards as the Comets control, Wrigler at the buzzer, and that ends the first period of action here. There is no score.
0: Chapter 7, Hearing Radio's Call. I finally got invited to work at a radio station, which worked out great because I could go to school, I could work at the radio station, and I could do some sports. That was the last job I had while I was in Marquette until I came to Fort Wayne. The funny part is that none of this was any part of a plan. In the beginning, when I was going to school, I was not prepared to be a broadcaster. Never gave it a thought. Then while I was working at a radio station in Marquette, they asked me to come over there and work because I had a bit of a reputation. I started doing hockey and other sports. It was a means to an end because I was going to college. I think I might have made 60 or 65 bucks a week. I started in 1949. It fit in with my school pretty well, and it was a winter job. I worked on the railroad, but they closed down in the winter because it was an iron ore carrying railroad. Once the shipping was done, so was the railroad. There might have been 20 jobs for the year in the wintertime, but I was so far down on seniority, I never had a chance. This came along, and I was invited to try it. You did everything. It was high. Would you run down and do the newscast? Okay, Wally will do it. Oh, by the way, I've got an hour this afternoon from 1 to 2. Get some records and go on it. It was that kind of thing, but it was all independent. This was a commercial radio station, WDMJ. It was owned by the Daily Mining Journal, the Marquette Local Paper. I had started with my exposure to doing sports, which they'd asked me to try hockey after they found out I'd played. It was kind of fun doing it. I apparently had a little bit of a gift for Gab. I was fortunate that people knew me in town, and I knew a lot of people listened. It was the only station in town. I envisioned I was talking to a lot of people I knew, which was kind of fun. That, of course, as I found out later, was the objective of a good broadcaster, to find people to speak to one-on-one. I talked to Murph a lot. When the kids grew up, even down there, I talked to the kids a lot from the microphone to the house, or my comments were directed with their knowledge. So a lot of other people at the same time thought, gee, he's talking to me. It's a secret to broadcasting success. I didn't have a plan for anything. I had graduated from college. The job I wanted hadn't materialized. And that would have been staying in the Upper Peninsula and being an economic advisor for the Cleveland Cliffs Iron Company on the economics of mining a ton of ore up on the range because they were having all kinds of labor problems. The mines were getting deeper and deeper. It cost more and more to mine a ton of ore, and that's why I wasn't hired at the time. During that strike, a man who was 63 years old had to cross a picket line at a mine shaft in order to go down into a mine and start the pumps to keep the water levels safe so they would be able to mine when they got back. His own son, who was on the line, jumped him and beat the living daylights out of him to show what a great union man he was. I'm looking at that and thinking, is this what I'm getting into? Is this the mentality of the people I have to work with? Not that I'm that superior, but I'm thinking if that's the way it goes when son beats up father, that was it for me right there. I figured, well, I'll find something else somewhere. I was relatively well known as an athlete. After the war, when I came back, when I quit playing sports, the people at the radio station had known who I was. The guy who was the manager of the station had also broadcast some hockey, so he was familiar with me through that. He said, did you ever try broadcasting? Come on down to the station. We'll talk. I went down and we talked and I went on the microphone and did a couple of things. Then he said, you know, I think you could do well. I'm thinking, yeah, sure. My moment there was still graduating and going into the Cleveland Cliffs Iron Company program, an educational program for miners. Had it not been for the strike, I would have either done something like that or been dead now from trying to cross the picket lines. But here I was in limbo. I had called some games at home before that, but they were basically exhibitions between our Marquette team and other teams that could get in there for games. We played a team from the Sioux one day, and I did the game, and we sent it down the line to WSOO. They had Bryce Martin doing their games, but he had moved on to WSAM in Saginaw, so I went over and did the games there. In fact, Bruce came back and did color for me for a few games, and later on, he went into the Detroit Red Wings organization. The first major game I did was the Sioux Greyhounds of the Northern Ontario Hockey League and the Cincinnati Mohawks of the International Hockey League playing for the North American Amateur Hockey Championship at Polar Stadium in Sault Ste. Marie. Despite all that, I still wasn't convinced that was going to be my career by any means. I had the greatest advisor in the world, my dad. He heard me do games on WD, MJ, and Marquette, And he'd say to me, Bucko, for heaven's sakes, when I'm listening to the games, the one thing I'd like to know is what's the score? Don't keep it a secret. There were other little things that he would just comment on as time went by to help make me more aware of what people wanted to hear. It came kind of naturally because I was still a player and through my eyes, I was still in the game and it made it easier for me to do the games. I was always pretty objective, as I am yet today. I rarely get involved and be critical. Some of the things I would refer to were different, but that was small town radio. It was kind of funny, and people used to like it, because I'd say something, and then they'd say the next day, I know exactly what you're talking about. Before I came to Fort Wayne, I probably had done 35 games over a period of two years. I had done some high school basketball and high school football and a little college basketball. I was in an element that I was well aware of, having played a lot of sports and enjoying them. It kind of helped me put myself in the mood of games. Maybe if I hadn't played, I'd be a little more reticent to express myself. It was almost too easy. Coming to Fort Wayne was a case of right place, right time. This friend of mine gets married. I'm in the wedding party. He was married at 11 o'clock, so I buzz off and do a noon newscast, then go out to the reception. His aunt was from Fort Wayne, and while riding to the reception, she heard me on the air. When she got back to Fort Wayne, she called the station manager, who was a good friend of hers, and said, I heard this guy in Marquette, Michigan. I think you better talk to him. They called out of the blue. The fellow says, we've got a good report. Send us a tape, will you? I say, okay, fine. I dismissed it completely, and I go back to my job, spinning records, and I just worked. About three days later, the phone rings, and it's the same guy saying, I'm still waiting for that tape. All of a sudden, I heard the station manager on the extension listening to my conversation, which ticked me off. He's eavesdropping on
2: Hi there, we are at Pirani Arena, we're in Flint, Michigan, the Comets and Flint meet for the first time in the year 2009-10, uh, you know, this is another game, we've got to come out, we've got to have a better first period than we've been having on the road, and know, uh, yeah, we want to score the first goal tonight. We've got um, Jamie Shopsma starting, along with uh, Tony Cusolino, and of course uh, it'll be Brian Smolinski, another one of their starters. Uh, not to mention the fact we will also have uh, Tyler Howells, and the other starter for them will be Craig Sescon. And the goaltender of record will be Jean-Francois Labie. We're in our usual spot, crammed down in the corner here, and you have to stand up to do the games because the table's so high, it blocks off the um, view of the arena. And sometimes I'm safer that way because there's a very skinny platform about 14 inches high. They put a chair on, and I get a little animated. And uh, if you go over the edge, down goes the chair, and down goes Bob, and who knows what. Okay, ready. at center ice. It will be. Into the face-off, Kaylee Schrock. Chalk into the draw. Chalk gets it back, holds it in, now lost it. Chase down Fort Wayne's own, as it will be Dupuis shoveling it cross rink to Phillips. Phillips tips it wide. Chalk after it, he's got it. Two on one, here they go. Shafranov shoots score! Nice play from Chalk. Shaft gets the goal. Down in the corner, as going after that one, Pernula. Comets keep it alive. Now back up comes Flint on their way to center ice. Can I go? They send a man in hard. Nice save, Timmy Hahn. Cold turkey walking in. Nathan Ward. No further damage. Great save, Timmy. As the middle man splits the defense, Nathan Ward takes the pass. Hikes right on in, and he stoned him. Yes. Got to have things like that right about now. Don't give them any momentum if at all possible. one nothing Comet's lead on. Whoa, whoa. Comet hockey. Schaffsma out behind the net. Looks, has nothing in front. All the way up top. Smolinski a drive and nicely hanging on On Another big save by Timmy. Smolinski with a good shot. Power play has 36 seconds still to run. Stazer now back in the corner. He's got it again. Here's Stazer. Down the zone. Down the zone. Deep all the way up top it comes as a shot that time didn't penetrate by DeAngelis he got it back here's another one score deflected in front of the net and it was either Thomas or Kampa who got the deflection I'm not sure which one at 15-28 one going. here, Schrock and Tyler Willis. And uh, Willis has got his hands full with Schrock, I'll tell you. And Schrock nailed him a couple. They haven't been able to get any farther as each has the other tied up. Now Schrock's trying to get a hand loose. Tyler's got one hand loose and Schrock, oh, he nailed him. Now Schrock's putting it on Morris. Under under a little uppercut. Schrock got him again. Now fed him a couple of shots to the head. They break it up. (coughs) And uh, Willis, tough little guy in truck, did a heck of a job with him. Kaylee Schrock, uh, the Fort Wayne-born newcomer on the hockey club. He took to pace the other night and positively beat him up. The pace was Muskegon, tough kid. All right, here's Chuck back into the face-off. It's 4-19 left in period number one, 2 nothing Comets lead. Chalk gets the draw nicely, back it comes in the corner. Uh, around the far wall. Now, here they come. At center. Lead pass going long. They pick up an open wing. Looking. A nice save on the play. Boy, I mean, Hahn's coming up with some big ones. Fought for down the wall as Veroni coming deep. Now it's picked off Back out to center. Foot race on for the puck. Played nicely by Woodard to the Comets. Ooh, he gave it away in front of the net. What a save, Hahn. And a rebound they score. And it's Ward who gets the rebound. Oh, made an incredible save. Another giveaway there, and it the came at 53 seconds. Nice lead pass going to the zone. Nice move. Good defensive play, though, as Roger forced his man off the puck. Here we come again. Oh, and a grip.
0: Another... Chapter 9, Tailing the Comets. When I got to Fort Wayne, July first, 1953, the guy who was WoWo's sports director at the time was Ernie Ashley. He did Big Ten football, and he did Comet hockey. All of a sudden, it's fall, and Ernie goes down to Bloomington to do IU football. So the program director says to me, I notice on your resume you've done some hockey. We're doing these Comet games, and I want you to do the games until Ernie comes back from Bloomington. You start it, and Ernie will come back and join you on the Saturday games. Apparently, they like what I did a lot. Ernie, even though he was from Minnesota, hadn't done much hockey. Because he was from Minnesota, they assumed he knew hockey. After about five weeks, people are starting to talk about this guy who is doing the Saturday games at which point Ernie started to come back a little bit quicker. The engineer who went with Ernie to Bloomington liked me, so what he would do on the way back was drive very slowly to make sure Ernie couldn't get back so I could get the games going. So Ernie started driving his own car to Indianapolis. He'd pick it up there and race home. He'd walk into the building, sit down in the seat, grab the mic, and away he'd go. It was just, hi folks, thanks Bob, I'm back, ta-da, and away we go. I guess Ernie had been putting out a few feelers to try and find a bigger market for himself, and about Christmas time, it turned out he had a chance to go as a program director at a station in Springfield, Ohio. It was a management position, and that's what Ernie wanted. So he's gone, and all of a sudden it's January, and guess who's doing Comet hockey?
1: Back, it comes to the right point, Vic Morn with a drive. Ooh, hit the post, right out in front again. Scramble for the puck, Atwell tied up. Sends it behind the net to Baldwin, he fires right through the goal crease. And Peoria clears to center, Mike Bolin takes the play for the Comets cross rink. It comes to Wayne Bishop. Up the middle. Nicely. Here's Salvucci. Here's Steve and he goes. Shoot. Score! Steve Salvucci. A happy Steve as the Comets are on the board. Ooh, and a good hit there by Dale Baldwin as he really had uh, McGinnis lined up. Here's Wayne Bishop. Bishop flips it high into the air. Kept into the zone again by Ivan Graves at the goal. Mouth a shot and a save. Sam Cardi and Danny stands strong again. Dale Baldwin has a breaking man, Rob Moats, trying to get him to the puck. Can he get there? Moats with a race, gets on the puck. First of all, Bob Atwell behind the net. Up for a shot save, hanging on the goaltender. All right, here comes the Comets with Bill Nichols firing out the left side to Craig Steenson. Steenson up the middle for Baldwin, into the zone to Moats. Moats comes cutting across the defense, slides it into Wrigler. Wrigler on the boards in the corner, tied up hard by the defense, but Moats has it back out to Bill Nichols. Here's Billy looking, shooting, great save. Motes rebound score! Moats pounced on a rebound, Robbie Moats, as he is on a real tear, his 27th goal of the campaign. Out it comes to center ice, turned loose, and Big John, Hillworth on the play, moves to the line. He goes across the zone, the puck checked away, and Steve Harrison in control. All right, we've got a little rumble going here between Hillworth and Al Graves. As Hillworth and Graves, a couple of heavyweights going after each other down in the corner. And uh, John didn't like the way he was being treated down there. He's just trying to get Graves organized where he can line him up. And Graves has got his hands full. There's no doubt about it. He's hanging on for dear life. Whoa, and John unloads on him. Nichols up with a puck. Up the slot. Intercepted. And here comes Prestige to the Fort Lane line. Drop pass to Kempthorne. At the net, Prestige scores with a backhander. Well-executed play. It is... Mike Prestige getting the goal as Peoria now on the board at 11 16. Commented many times before, it's amazing. Uh, each of these players is carrying around about uh, six to $800 worth of equipment. That's what it costs uh, to equip a hockey player. And. Uh, they all go after a 35 cent puck up the boards it comes and it's dropped from the defense back to uh, Vic Morin Morin now is going to be forechecked he's got to dump it out of there Baldwin came back to save the day left wing pass turned in nicely by Moats all the way to the corner the goaltender out at the buzzer and that is the end of period number two the score the Fort Wayne Comets two and the Peoria Prancers one Bucci with it Here's Steve on the corner, in front of the net, looks, shoots wide. Another shot went wide as Moats tried to get a piece of it. Now, out the slot, a drive off the side of the net again by Salvucci. Here's Sal, behind the net, trying to get it around front. Pokes away at it, can't get it. Hanging on is the goaltender, as Lestuca decides that's enough of that. And Steve Salvucci up with the puck for Fort Wayne. Steve on his way to the line, into the zone he goes. Drops it off to Big John. Hillworth fires, save, rebound out, and Salvucci got the puck for a shot, but couldn't make it. Tied up. Trying to kick the puck up. Gets it loose to Wrigler. Wrigler coming out to the point to Craig Steenson. Steenson puts it in. It's blocked in the breakaway. Here comes George White. Steenson trying to catch him. White coming in on St. Cartier. He hits the post. Let's see what happened there as the post came right off the pegs. We may have the tying goal there, I would offhand think. As the Prancers, at 3.37 of the period, tie it up. Rozanzov's got it and pounds it right back into the Fort Wayne zone. Came hard off the boards, picked up by Bill Nichols. Here's Billy coming up the boards. He's ridden off the puck. Ian uh, McGinnis, a score on a completely super play as Rozanzov takes a pass from behind the net and hammers it on by Saint-Cartier. And now the Prancers are in the lead 3-2. to two.
0: Chapter 11, Keeping My Day Job. When I started at WoWO, I was a staff announcer, and that meant you had a schedule you went by, and you did station breaks and all kinds of stuff like that. You had a few little record shows that you do on the weekends, but it was strictly a journeyman job. And when I first got started until Ernie left, I was still a desk jockey as a staff announcer and sports announcer, so I had daily sports casts I was responsible for. Those were back in the days when sports casts were 15 minutes to a half an hour, when you could really do a sports cast with a lot of interviews and things like that. The first thing I realized was how big WoWo was, because when you got there, you'd look at the big map of the world on the wall, and there were little pins stuck in all over the place. I asked what those were for. That's where we've gotten letters for WoWo's reception. South America was very, very strong. England, France, Germany, Africa, Australia. It was so mind-boggling when you turned a microphone on and the responsibility that you had because of the territory that was covered. You were in awe of the fact that you were working for a radio station of that caliber. As I've said so many times, Westinghouse being the owner of that, it couldn't get any better than it was. It was better than working for NBC or CBS. It was a thrill and privilege that will forever be in my life. In 1954, Westinghouse began to clean out all of their soap operas and drop NBC and ABC networks because they realized there was a lot more lucrative income in the local markets, but they were all plugged up because they had nothing but network stuff on. As soon as they could phase out contracts, they'd end up with a half an hour of radio time maybe from 11 to 11.30 in the morning, and every half hour would open up. Guess what? There'd be Bob, and I'd be filling in with music. I'd get a half hour here and an hour there. Finally, when they got it all cleared out and began putting people in place, Westinghouse said, okay, buddy, you're the guy who sorta blazed the trail. You get the choice. Do you want morning or afternoon drive? I said afternoon drive, and I was never sorry for it because this was a real factory town, and between 3 and 5 p.m., this town was an anthill with all the factories changing. We called it the Bob Chase Show, and I was on from 3 to 7 in the evenings. There would be the 6 o'clock news slot, which would last a half an hour, and then I'd come back and finish it off until 7. I had a very successful run as a jock in town. At one time, I had a 78 share of the audience at 4 p.m., one of the highest ratings in the country at the time. We were all powerful. Westinghouse made us that way because they were a scientific company who knew how to prepare broadcasts to air and catch the ear of the public. With the 50,000-watt signal, we were all over North America, and everybody knew WO. At one point, Bob Sievers was the number five disc jockey in all of the United States. I was the 11th at the time. That's the kind of broadcasting excellence that Westinghouse knew how to develop. When I started my show, I understood what my responsibilities were, and the important thing in those days, you had to focus on music and timing. It wasn't just grab some record and run. There's an incredible science when you're programming music on radio. At that point, you didn't have a lot of time to talk because you were so loaded with commercials. When jockeying was big in the early 1950s, Record companies were turning out records that were like three minutes, three and a half minutes long or better. All of a sudden they realized if they wanted to get their records played, they better be two minutes to two minutes and 15 seconds or you couldn't afford to play them. At that time, you still didn't have a lot of time to talk. But I managed to work my way around it in a way that almost got me in trouble. If I had a problem or had something in my crawl, I would say, Boy, just got a letter from down in Huntington yesterday, and they were talking about such and such. They were saying, this is right, this is wrong, I don't know. How do you feel about that?" So I'd let it go, and one day the general manager said to me, Chase, I've been listening to you on the air reading those letters. That's fine, but I'm the only person who editorializes on this station, and you better remember that. Well, if he'd ever asked me for an actual letter, I would have been gone. I didn't get those letters, but it was one way I could relieve my mind of some issues. If I was going to go on the road for a hockey game, I would come in at 11 a.m. and do the show on tape. Then I'd be gone so my show would play. We were on the air seven days a week, We weren't in the studio seven days a week because on Sunday we had a group called The Fabulous Four and we would do four hours of music from noon to 4 p.m. An hour apiece we taped on Friday or Saturday. The Fabulous Four were myself, Jack Underwood, Marv Hunter, and Cal Stewart. I left The Fabulous Four in 1967 when I was named a Marketing and Promotions Manager and I think it lasted until 1971. Whatever I did, I was always very fortunate because I had my family at home. From Mike on down to David, I bracketed about every age group imaginable in youth, so I knew their likes and dislikes. I knew all the lingo, and it helped me immensely when to play my music, when to play certain kinds of music when I knew the kids were listening, and I knew there were times the kids weren't listening, so I'd go back to play the adult music. One of the things back in the early days of record spinning, you didn't have to be a rock jock, a country jock, or a pop jock. You were just an entertainer, and you had a music library full of the greatest artists in the world. During one program, I might play Bill Haley, Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, all kinds of things. Even female artists and groups, big bands, and country and western. There was some as it was Smolinski
2: who set his man up that time. Let's see who got this one. We're tied at two on two quick goals. Chaff got a touch, tipped it wide, race on for the loose puck. Back it comes as Steve Silver wins the race. Chased all the way though by PC Druin. Comets go in now, nothing going there. Comets in battle for the loose play, and now, what a save Han on that one! As what happened? Apparently, it slips through somehow. Han had it, somebody went by and poked it away from Han. Apparently, and it's now the lead going to Flint at 11 05. <laughs> Chalk into the faceoff against Bullock. Faceoff, drive, gore! PC from the point. Faceoff directly back. Chalk to PC, hammers it on the ice. And we're even. We have four seconds left in the period. Dupuy behind his own net. Puts a long shot on goal at the other end. Buzzer sounds, period's over. Regulation is over. We are tied at 3-3. Here we go. Four on four. Ferroni going in, banging away on his man. Buzzer. End of regulation. End of overtime. Tied 3-3. Three, three. Wow. Oh, my. Comets pick up two shots. One shot for Flint. And we're all set to go to that dreaded old shootout. Let's see how we do with that one. Huh? We're at center ice getting ready for it. Uh, 2,209 folks, and nobody's leaving, I'll tell you that. Advising with the rules, apparently. Okay. Here we come. Thompson will be the first shooter for Flint. Down he comes. On meets him out high. Here we go. Nice save, Timmy. Nice save, Timmy. First shooter out for the Comets will be... Shafranov. Okay, Shafi, in he goes. He's coming right, coming left. Takes a look. He's going, whoa. Oh, what a move. Whoa, Chaffee gets the score. He did a double peek on that one. It was unbelievable. Carried him right to the net, but he poked it home. Big one, big one. Here we come now, and the next shooter is going to be Pernula. All right, in he comes all the way left. Oh, great save again. Tornola no good. Next shooter coming out. And it's going to be Bullock. All right, here he is. Night save Timmy, we win. All right. Timmy stones them all. We get the win for three post-game show in a moment on WOBO Comet Hockey. A big night for the Ks. They had it, gave it away, got it back, and then finally took it in a shootout. The only goal scored in the shootout, Konstantin Shifranov, the first shooter for the Comets, and that's all she wrote as the Ks had to come off the deck to get this one. Believe you me, a tough, tough night for them. So... How about that? The Comets, with a big win on the road, had to have it and got it. So they will be back home next weekend, Friday, Saturday, home, Sunday on the road. The next action will be Friday night as the Quad City Mallards come to town. We are kind of relaxing. Right now, Bobby Phillips is on the ice, apparently popped a contact, and he's looking around to see if he can see a glimmer of it somewhere on the line. And uh, once they come out, With all that ice and stuff, it's pretty difficult to find them. But they're going to come out and see if they can find anything out there at all. So there you have it. We're still tied for the top spot in the IHL. Hey, guess what? Bobby Phillips, he finds his contact. He's up in the air waving it, and he's got a big smile on his face. Got what we wanted? There we are. So it's a totally happy night. As Bobby, uh, guess what he wants? We got what we wanted, a big win. You had to go to overtime, led 2 nothing at the end of one, trailed 3-2 at the end of two, tied it with Druin. It's uh, in the third period, and boom, boom, Schaaf gets the overtime goal, and that's all she wrote.
0: Chapter 22, The Lords of Hockey. With the advent of the Memorial Coliseum in 1952, Zollner Piston fans were about to embark on a whole new era, Here was a big building and a professional building, something they had always wished for and finally had. There was another group in the city interested in a sport called hockey, which at the time was completely foreign to Fort Wayne and Indiana. Hockey was soon to prove it was going to be a major force in competing for the entertainment dollar in the entire market. A couple of visionaries, Harold Van Orman, a local hotel magnate, and his sidekick Ernie Berg, who at the time was a marketing man for a local gas distribution organization, decided they wanted to try hockey. The third member of the group was Roman Perry, who was the group's attorney, and had also had a modest investment in the franchise. The story of their acquiring a franchise is a tale unto itself. They went to Toledo to meet with the commissioner of the league, Andy Mulligan, to apply for a franchise. When Mulligan told them the franchise was going to cost $2,500 without missing a beat, Van Orman pulled out his wallet from his pocket, laid it on Mulligan's desk, and said, there it is. At which time, Mulligan said thank you and issued them a franchise. Mr. Van Orman quickly picked up his wallet and put it back in his pocket and he and Ernie left Toledo assured they would have a franchise. Had Mulligan challenged Van Orman's wallet, he'd find about $40 in it, not nearly the $2,500 needed. The new ownership wisely decided they need to educate the local fans on hockey and held two free preseason clinics at the Coliseum. The local sports fans came out in such numbers that both clinics filled the building. When the first season started, and in the face of the NBA's Zollner Pistons, the Comets immediately began to outdraw professional basketball. Even with Van Orman, Perry, and Berg running the team, the first four years, they had little success on the ice. They had more than fair success at the box office, but mismanagement eventually also cost them the franchise. In 1958, when faced with financial difficulty, they went in search of somebody to help resurrect the franchise and appealed to a friend of Van Orman's who ran a team in Troy, Ohio by the name of Ken Wilson. In fact. They initially offered Wilson the job, which he didn't accept, but promised that he would produce a person who could help them out of their dilemma, and at the time turned to his personal friend Ken Olliott, introducing him to Van Orman and Berg to run the team. Olliott also at the time began to bring in talented players. He had a great scouting chain throughout his junior background. His brother-in-law, Johnny Walker, was the chief scout of the New York Rangers. He put together the base of that long successful run for many years. When Ken showed up, he realized the potential here. He wanted some of the action. And eventually bought out the rest of the owners. When he left, he gave it to Colin Lister to run, but that was a very difficult time economically in Fort Wayne during the early 1980s. Colin was undercapitalized, and he couldn't maintain the team, but then local radio executive Bob Britt decided he was interested in buying the club. During the following year, it turned out that he didn't have the liquidity to keep the team going, so they went into bankruptcy. The team was about to fold, but as it was about to go under, David Welker entered. No one else was going to step up, and he did, and he ran the team for several years before he got into a spat with the Memorial Coliseum. David pulled stakes and moved the franchise to Albany, New York, where he met complete resistance and the Choppers failed in half a season. That's when the Fronkies came along and purchased a defunct franchise that belonged to Flint. When their big chance came, they had a lot of community contacts and a lot of great ideas. They just openly said, we're going to do this and that and have a sellout opening night. They began to market the daylights out of hockey and made it happen. They really continue to be successful because of the way they force themselves into the market. Well, good evening. We, of course, at U.S. Cellular Coliseum, we are in Bloomington,
2: Illinois, the home of the Prairie Thunder. <laughs> Announcing that we're going to be honoring Rob Gwynn, as we told you earlier. And uh, Rob's uh, widow and uh, baby daughter, Brooke, his wife, and Olivia, their little daughter. Uh, we'll be here to accept uh, something that the Fort Wayne Comets, the Bloomington Prairie Thunder have put together who everybody always liked and everybody the both teams are standing respectfully at their benches and the fans, many of them are standing up as they watch this little presentation as uh, Gwinner uh, never one to shy away from action pictures of Gwynny with uh, both the Comet jersey on as well as the Prairie Thunder jersey. So uh, giving him his credit for the two teams he played for here in the IHL and the UHL. One of the last interviews I did over here was with Rob Gwyn last year, the final game that we played. These are the times you wish, I wish, that I had saved many of the interviews that I've done over the years, but you amass such an incredible amount, such a volume of them, that you, you just you just... Really can't get it done, but there are some moments I wish I had been able to preserve, and Rob's interview was one of those. Always called me Chaser, and uh, it was just a pleasure to watch Rob win. So right now, we're ready to start uh, a hockey game, and the players come out, and they'll skate around just a little bit, loosen up before we drop the puck and get this one underway. Lead pass good to Shafranoff. Here's Shaf. Seeds it up the middle. It's a bouncing puck. Here it comes. Chalk's got a deep. Oh, score! As Chalk sets up Shafranov. Bang, bang, bang. And back again we come. Oh, cross rink. It's Dupuis. let shoot. Score! Dupuis gets the goal. Goes to uh, P.C. to Dupuis. Down the right wall to Chalk. Chalk looks and he goes. Shoots and it deflects wide. Score! The rebound came right back to Curado. Back we go, one more time, look out, into the zone, it's Huckalow, Huck still got it, he's in front, feeds back, Curdo score, from Huckalow, second goal of the night for A power play now, it is 4-2, here it comes back again, Lego going in, next man, here they come, two on one, lego has got the lead, here he comes, feeds it back in front of the net, pot shoots, just missed the net, here they come back in again, broken up again by Maranovic, up come the Comets. In goes P.C. Drew, and he looks. He's out front. Shoot. Score! P.C. pulls the trigger. Bang. Short-handed. Into the corner it goes. digging is Swesher, the D-man. Round the wall. Kept in by the Comets. A shot. Oh, boy. Right in front of the net, kind of waiting for that one was Potts, and he could not get a stick on it when he needed it. Right to the front of the net. No play. Kept in again as it's going to be Legault banging it deep. Picked off there by Potts. Right out front shot. Save! Thomas have it up top. Now it's PC Drewin. Down in the corner for Chalk. Back to PC. PC looks, can't get it. Down to Chalk again. They're trying to get it to Curto up the score. What a play. Chalk set it up. Curto, high slot. Bang, bang. He has the hat trick. That's where that puck back up ice it comes. As sent back into the corner. Potts was in, finally dumped the puck deep in the zone. Man, they gave him a bad pass, but. Botsy saw the traffic coming and got it dumped. One gets by, buzzer sounds, game over. Final score, 7-4. College beat the Bloomington Prairie
0: Thunder. Chapter 24, Oliott Comes to Town. Despite some early successes drawing crowds in the first season, after a while, the Comets were just hanging on, and they were going belly up before they brought Ken Olliott here in 1958. They were either going to close the doors or find somebody to help them put a hockey club together because they were going bankrupt because of mismanagement and the inability to understand how to organize a team. They had no contacts to bring in good players, and they relied on whoever was coached to bring them in. For an instance, the first and second year they were in the IHL, they ran ads in the hockey news saying hockey players wanted call for information. Then these guys would call and give their pedigree, and these guys here knew nothing about them. Honest to goodness, they were people who came into training camp, who stood and hung onto the corners of the net to make sure they could stand there long enough for somebody to see them. There were several you thought, man, I hope this guy doesn't get on the ice because they're going to kill him. There were some real jokes out there, but the owners didn't know any better because they were poor hockey people. The only thing they knew was, man, if we get hockey in here, we know it's going to go. And they were right, but it took a while because they didn't know what they were doing. They spent a lot of money on players and were spinning their wheels. Some of their first coaches were good guys, but they brought in their own people to play and lived and died with those people, and they died more than they lived. It was the same old story. Bring in your friends, and they'll eat off your back as long as you keep them. Some of them didn't. Eddie Long never did. George Drysdale never did. But a lot of them came in and just enjoyed the ride. It's amazing in a way that hockey stayed here and preserved because of the terrible record we had. They had gotten down to a point where the team had not been playing well and nobody was coming to the games. The Pistons were still in town, and they weren't drawing that well either. Everybody hoped with a new building, they could fill it up, but that didn't happen. A lot of crowds were 2,200, 2,800, maybe 3,400. A big crowd was 4,100 to 4,200, and we were doing well if we could get that. If we could end up with 5,000, oh baby, we were flying that night. Then Ernie Berg called me one day in the summer of 1958 and said, We have a fellow coming in that Kenny Wilson recommended. He said he's a hell of a hockey man, and we need somebody badly. Ken Elliott really didn't look like what you would expect a crusading hockey general manager to look like. He was extremely well-groomed, as he always is. He wore kind of brown-rimmed glasses and had his hair all combed down. He wasn't the big hulking guy. He looked more like a professor than a hockey guy, and he was a professor, as it turned out. Ken had spent his hockey life not playing, but observing. He watched how people did things, and he curried the favor of a lot of coaches and managers while he played for them because he was interested. He learned a lot of lessons many hockey players never did, and when he came here, he had a lot that he could apply. All he had to do was make phone calls if he needed help or ideas. Ken didn't exhibit much personality when he first came. I think he was trying to get to know the community and people around him, and he really didn't let his guard down too much to start. The first thing he did was to start to bring in some bona fide hockey players. That's when a lot of the old-timers who played prior to that left. One of the things he was really concerned about was Edgar Blondin, because he was just an incredible crowd favorite, because when Ken saw the makeup of things, he realized Edgar wasn't going to make the team. The question was, how in the heck am I going to approach this thing? What are the fans going to think when the first thing I do is get rid of the most popular player we've got? We had training camp in Troy, Ohio, and Kenny's training camps were real training camps. Once you win over the boards, buddy, be ready to hang your hind end on the end of those suspenders and skate it off. Well, after about four or five days down there, Edgar spent every day heaving over the rail. He finally went to Ken one day and said, I appreciate the fact that you invited me to your camp, but I guess I'm not going to make it, so I'm going to retire. That was the greatest thing that could have ever happened as far as Ken was concerned, and Edgar made the right decision. It was an amazing evolution when Ken came here, because some of the people he felt were going to be problems, as if by magic, those people faded away. He started bringing in some of these people that nobody had ever heard of, and that changed the face of this hockey club. He brought skill into the game, and right off the bat, we started winning, which was something we hadn't done consistently. That all of a sudden put a new image on the face of Comet hockey. He knew a lot of people in Western Canada, and began to bring in players like Reggie Primo, Lionel Repka, Con Manigan, John Ferguson, and Dwayne Rupp. From then on, it was a whole different attitude. You remember players who left here because of their accomplishment, rather than their inability to do things. We ended up with some great hockey teams. He brought in a lot of quality players with character. One thing about Ken... He didn't care if you were a Wayne Gretzky. If you didn't have character and morality, he didn't want you. He got a few of them in there who surprised me, because they weren't what we expected, and talent be darned, bingo, they're gone. He brought a number of people in here who were pretty good hockey players, but he didn't fit the mode of what he wanted, and they parted amicably. I finally convinced Ken that WoWo was the place he had to be if he had planned to tell the story of hockey to this market. He had been pressured pretty hard right off the bat by Hilliard Gates to go with WKJG because the Pistons had just left town. Hilliard had all the authority because he ran and owned the station and could offer Kenny anything he wanted where I was limited in what I could do. The station wasn't that excited about making any concessions because at the time the Comets were ready to go anywhere and the station wasn't really that excited about it. We almost didn't get on the same page, but we finally got things together so we go to Orchard Ridge one noon and have a lunch to consummate the deal. Don Rice from Rice Oldsmobile was going to be the major sponsor. Carl Vandegrift, the GM of WoWo, was there, and Ken. We were having a very cordial time and had lunch and everybody was pretty comfortable and Ken gets up and says, That's the problem with you Americans. You sit down to have lunch and you waste two hours talking about nothing. I have things to do today. Thanks. See ya. When we got back to the station, Vandy said, You know, for two cents, I'd jerk this thing. I can't believe somebody would do that. Doesn't he realize we're trying to help him? I said, yeah. But you have to understand Ken, and he said, I do not. Ken better understand us. There was the battle line I had to fight for four or five years, and it wasn't easy. When Ken showed up, he transformed this franchise into really what it is today. He set the tone morally and ethically, and everybody inherited the traits and kept it going to the point where it became the flagship of the league. I'm not trying to minimize anybody else in the league, but it's obvious. That's another fortunate part of being here where I am and have been since I started that big 50,000 watts booming all over North America. That alone was a real establishing factor for accepting the IHL in a lot of areas because I was the only person at the time broadcasting and we were heard everywhere. I was the first guy to every broadcast and it began to catch on. We sort of had this inside track about it and people began to talk. I always try to keep the NHL presence involved in it by giving their scores. There were a lot of people who knew a lot of players in the league and had no way of keeping up with them, so there I
2: was. Good evening. We're at L.C.
0: Walker Sports Arena. That is in
2: Muskegon, Michigan. It is Turner Cup Championship time. This is Game 3. Comets lead the series two games to none by virtue of 2-1 overtime win and a 7-1 shellacking on Thursday night. Muskegon, Michigan, and Al Sims getting ready. We're either halfway up or halfway down the hill. I I, I say we're going up the hill. And uh, tonight's a big one here, game three, against uh, the Lumberjacks and Muskegon. This is the key key of the whole bunch right now. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, every game gets bigger as you get into a seven-game series, and uh, last game was the biggest until tonight. Now tonight's the biggest until tomorrow, and, you uh, Etc. Uh, Etc. Cetera, et cetera. But uh, you know we want to keep doing the good things we're doing, and uh, you know our special teams have been excellent. Uh, our defense has been real good, and you know those are the uh, areas we need to be good in tonight. Hats off to you. We had a busload coming up here, and about everybody dressed and was skating today. You brought the whole group of guys that were lugging the load out here. Yeah, you know, Brandon Warner skated today for the first time, and, uh, you know, everybody was out there, uh, Olivier Legault, and we brought everybody with us on this trip, and, uh, you know, they've all been part of it, and if we should uh, happen to be fortunate enough to win it tomorrow night, uh, we wanted them to be here and be part of uh, the Cup celebration, and, uh, you know, we'll just have to see how it goes one game at a time here. But Roger couldn't finish it off. He had a chase now as Kareem to the corner a shot right across the goal mouth. Veroni dumps it out. at center ice. Here we come. On the move, it is going to be O'Connor. He's through there. He looks. He shoots and Score! It is Hodgman on a nice setup from O'Connor. Up top again. Got to shoot for heaven's sake. They, whoa, that time Shafranoff couldn't score. Behind the net, here we come again. The Comets miss three unbelievable chances. Here's Chalk. Shoot, shoot, shoot. He does. Up top. Here we go. Score! The Comets get it. It was Schaffronoff. He waited and waited for Armstrong. Schaffer gets the power play goal, and that was about the fifth chance they had. Stopping for the goal, Bouchard. And we'll see who else got it. The word tied at two early in the third period. Good play, good goal. Nick never had a chance on it. Time. Another shot that time by Robinson. Up top again. Comets have it now. Out at center. Here goes off Shafi into the zone. Through the D. He's still got it. He's out there. Feeds in front of the net. Score. Comets. It is Curado. Curado, Shaf. What a piece of magic Shaf threw on that one. Unbelievable at 250. Robinson back at center, at the line. Here they come, deep in the corner again. All down behind the net says, I've got it. But out at the point, Comets camp, and it's given away up the middle to Jens. Jens came left point, left point, play in front of the net. They scramble. Here they go down the length of the rink. Is this one going in? It is score! Huckalow, empty netter. That came at 19-20. Huckalow. Aldoff chased it down Fort Wayne zone. Back up the wall. Kept in, though. Aldoff behind the net still has it. Turns it around the far wall. Back up it comes as McMillan dumps it wide. Here comes Litwin. In on the zone. All by himself. He's there. He shoots and scores. <laughs> so Litwin gets the goal. That's the Comets' fifth. It came at 19.50, and he just broke away steam down and flat, clean, beat uh, Armstrong on a breakaway. Everybody checking around to make sure the numbers are right. The score is 5-2 Comets. And here we come again. Down the wall. Pick back up. Scramble for it. It's over. Game over. Comets win. Final score 5-2. On World this is Comet Hockey. Well, it's a big one here tonight. And again, it was one of those pivotal games. Depending on who wins, how goes the series. Well, the Comets win. The series is 3-0 in their favor with the next game here tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, and there's nothing much you can do once you get it down to a level where you're down three games to none. You've got four chances to get back in, and you have to win them all. Now, that's that's not very good odds, especially when you're playing a club like Fort Wayne, who is very well balanced. So we'll see you here tomorrow night, 645 on WoWo, and uh, 7 o'clock is game time, game four. Can the Comets close it in four? Will they be back at the Coliseum? You never can tell. We'll play the game. We'll broadcast the game. And at the end, you'll know where we're going to be. Great game. 5-2. Comets win up 3-0 in the Turner Cup Championship Series. See you tomorrow night at 645. My name's Bob Chase. This has been a whoa,
0: whoa, uh, Fort Wing Comet Sports Exclusive. I hope everybody had as much fun listening to that as I had putting it together. Lots of fun, lots of emotions, lots of memories. Uh, I really enjoy doing these tributes to Bob, and I really hope uh, you get a chance to download the book. Go to bobchasebook.com. You can purchase the audio version of Bob's autobiography. I had a lot of fun putting it together, a lot of memories, and and even a lot of emotions uh, doing that book, and I was more than happy to do it uh, for all you fans, for Bob's family, and for anybody. Uh, who just loves Comet Hockey, I would just recommend going and getting that book. It is bobchasebook.com and if you get a chance, go back and listen to the two other tributes that I did last year with Bob. It had completely different content, so uh, go back and listen to those and uh, enjoy next week's too because uh, I'm going to be doing the exact same thing next week. More excerpts from the book and some more great Bob Chase calls. Again, bobchasebook.com Please go out and download that. Really would appreciate that. Alright, well thanks a lot fans for listening. I hope Hope everyone enjoyed it, and uh, you'll get another one next week.